That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with six-time Grammy Award-winning producer and songwriter Glenn Ballard. Hello, friends. Looking for some new music to add to your collection? Head on over to Rhino.com and check out these titles. Sepultura, Beneath the Remains 2LP Deluxe Edition on Orange Vinyl. Miles Davis, Rubber Band, 2LPs and 1-7-inch from the 1985 Warner Brothers Sessions, never released until now. And The Replacements, Dead Man's Pop, a 4-CD, 1-LP Deluxe Edition set from the Don't Tell a Soul Sessions, featuring the album mixed as it was originally intended, along with a collection of previously unreleased material. Make sure you sign up to be a Rhino Insider so you can get credit for your purchases and earn points for Rhino Rewards. Well, our guest on the Rhino Podcast today is six-time Grammy Award winner Glenn Ballard, one of Popular Music's most accomplished producers and songwriters whose records have sold more than 150 million copies worldwide. His most recent project is the Netflix original series, The Eddie. It's a music-driven, multicultural drama about a jazz band trying to survive in chaotic modern-day Paris. Ballard has written and composed original songs and music for the show and also serves as an executive producer. Glenn produced and co-wrote Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, 17 times platinum in the U.S., 33 million sales worldwide, four Grammys, and named Best Album of the Decade by Billboard. It's now celebrating its 25th anniversary with a new digital deluxe version from Rhino out as of June 26th, which pairs the original 13-track album with a new acoustic live album from Alanis' performance at Shepherd's Bush from March 2020, just before the pandemic shut everything down. The list of Glenn's achievements goes on and on, including writing and arranging Man in the Mirror for Michael Jackson. He's written and produced songs for Quincy Jones, Aretha Franklin, Shakira, Adina Menzel, George Benson, George Strait, Wilson Phillips, Van Halen, Shaka Khan, Patty Austin, Al Jarreau, Andrea Bocelli. He's worked with Barbra Streisand, Katy Perry, Aerosmith. Anyways, you get the picture, so let's get to the conversation. Glenn Ballard, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thrilled to be here. 
It is the 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pill, maybe the biggest record of the 90s. Certainly, it's in that rarefied air. There aren't that many diamond records out there. This record sold 33 million copies to date. Amazing. It's a remarkable fact, one that I'm still astonished by, especially in, in the way media is now. It would be hard to do that now. Exactly. It was uh, at a point in time where everything just must have come together for you beautifully. It was so symbiotic, I'm sure. I think if you're patient and work hard every day, eventually you get lucky. And certainly I feel very, very lucky to have been involved with this project without any question. But you have to show up every day to collaborate with your destiny. So that's my mantra is be ready to, to go to work. And if something good may or may not come out of it, but if you don't go, it, nothing will come out of it. So, you know. Yeah. I love that. To collaborate with your destiny. I've never heard that before. And I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, they say luck favors the prepared, right? Yes, you got to show up, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we will absolutely get into the meat and potatoes of that record. But it's fresh on my mind because I just watched the first episode of The Eddie last night. Right. And I want to talk about that for a little bit, because this really is not your average Netflix series. The vibe of it is a complete 180 of anything else they have yeah. right now in their content. And I, I watched it with my 15-year-old son, and he was, you know, engrossed in something in his hands, as all kids are these days. But when it was over, I didn't even ask him what he thought. He just offered up, man, the music really set the tone of that show. Oh, that's exactly what I hoped would happen. It takes place in modern-day Paris. The main character is a jazz pianist who is a co-owner of a jazz club called The Eddie, kind of in a little seedier neighborhood in Paris. I'm taking it just by the vibe and the things that happen in the show. But how did you get involved with the show? And because you have written the music for it, including the main song, The Eddie, which is at the end of the first episode. And I don't want to say the place that it serves in the episode, because I don't want to throw out any spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but man, it just fits so, so well. How did you get involved in this? How did it come around? Well, I got involved by coming up with the idea for it. I'm a part-time Parisian. I'm, I'm about 37% French, according to my DNA. My father's from Louisiana, so I have some French Louisiana in me. And growing up around New Orleans, I'm just around jazz my whole life. And yeah, always enamored of the musicianship involved with playing jazz. So for me, I, in, in my long career, I started off working with Quincy Jones, who is himself a jazz refugee. And, you know, one of the first songs I had recorded was by George Benson, another great jazz artist who was actually doing a kind of a pop crossover because when George Benson started singing, he got 10 times more popular than just playing guitar. <laughs> Although he's yeah, right. the greatest guitarist ever. So, I think what I learned from, from that is that pop music has a certain dominance. But Quincy and I, in the 10 years that I worked with him very closely, we always lamented, like, what happened to jazz, you know? So, of course, Quincy made incredible connections between hip-hop and jazz as one of the great, you know, authors of sort of launching this new sound that in, in many ways grows out of jazz, it grows out of blues, it grows out of rap. But for... Probably my whole career, I've wanted to find a meaningful way to do use the jazz vocabulary as a songwriter. 
And so it took me a while to figure out how you to do that. If you, you could write a bunch of jazz songs right now and give them to a contemporary artist, and it's the likelihood that that would be heard is very low. Right. Basically, because people like your 15-year-old son actually don't know what jazz is. They, they think of it as something that people did at a time before them, or they look back at the greats, black and white photographs of Miles Davis, and that's to them what jazz is. And so it's not alive anymore, you know? So it was for me, I, I had this dream that I wanted to have my own jazz band, write the songs for it, have a great singer and have a story to go with it. That was the way I wanted to approach the whole idea of, of me getting involved seriously with jazz. So in 2007, I was working with a jazz trumpeter named Christian Scott, one of the great young jazz artists in the world. He's from New Orleans. And I literally got inspired in 2007 to create a project that would allow me to have my band, allow me to write jazz songs and have a story to go with it. So I started writing songs in 2007. I wrote a bunch of songs with Christian. I ended up writing, uh, I don't know, about 60 jazz, new jazz songs. Wow. Because I'm a pop songwriter, I guess. I wanted to make sure that they were songs that you could remember, that had hooks, and that had a singer. Because I think that's what was missing from a lot of what people's perception of jazz was it's become a self-indulgent, kind of closed off, cul-de-sac, sort of us against the world. And, and for me, that's not what jazz is. I, w I wanted it to be something that celebrated being close to great musicians playing music. And people who do that in a jazz ensemble are typically highly gifted musicians. In fact, you can't even sit in that circle if you can't really play. So for me, I wanted to write a love letter to all the musicians that I've grown up with and working in Hollywood for as long as I have around some of the greatest, greatest musicians ever. I wanted to find a way for them to use all of their juice. And so for me, that was jazz. So we wrote all these songs. 2014, I brought it to a friend of mine named Alan Poole, who's a great director, producer. And he said, I get it. And that's when he connected us with Damien Giselle before La La Land, before First Man. So, you know, Damien was involved with this project about seven years ago. And we said, let's do this thing about a jazz band living in Paris, contemporary Paris. Damien's got a French background. I've lived in and out of Paris in all of my adult life. I spent a lot of time there, a lot of time in the jazz clubs. And it was like, look, Paris has changed. People have an idea of Paris and of jazz as being this kind of thing from the 30s or from the 50s. Paris is a different place now. It's still incredibly vivid and, and has this great history, but what's the new jazz? And you find that, like you say, on the fringes of, of, of Paris, outside beyond the Ring Road, in some of the arrondissements that people don't know about unless you live in Paris. But there's still music being played in those places, and there are a lot of young people who go in there and listen. So, how many? What's the jazz scene like in Paris? Are there a lot of clubs? Is it like really pretty popular? There are thirteen places where you can go hear jazz on any given night. Usually, it's not anybody famous, but it's just people in there playing, chasing this thing called jazz, and young people in there listening, paying attention, drinking, smoking, having fun. I just thought this jazz is still alive. Yeah, the jazz is intimate. Jazz doesn't belong in a concert stage. It's intimate. It's like Frank Sinatra said, I'm the greatest saloon singer who ever lived. Yeah. And I love that idea of like music is personal. It's close. You're close to it. 
and it it has a, a transcendent quality if you're around the real thing. And I just think for 20 years, we've been around music that's all digital. It's all driven by computers. And it's all interesting and it's quite vivid, but there's something missing from four or five people playing together at a really, really high level. So that was what the Eddie was supposed to be. And, and somehow I pulled it off. You know, I got, I got the greatest band. I wrote all these songs. I got a great singer. And we made this incredible show. Yeah. I think that's one of the first things as I was watching it that struck me. I'm like, oh, these guys are really playing. It wasn't a bunch of actors up there like, you know. I think all of us in the music world, we look at the attempts to show music being made in TV and music and, and movies. And it's always kind of phony. Yeah. It's always yeah. just a little bit, uh, you know, just kind of phony. It throws it off. Yeah. It throws and, it off. And anybody who's a real music person feels a little bit of that disconnect. It's not quite real. So yeah. Damien and Alan and Jack Thorne, our writer, and, and I, and Randy Kerber, our piano player and co-composer, we just said, we're going to do this live. And so Netflix said, what does that entail? And we said, it entails a hell of a lot more. <laughs> so they said, do it. So I just, I'm just grateful to everybody that they would embrace the idea that we would do, we'd shoot eight episodes and record it all live and not, not have any score, which there is none. It's all diegetic. So the music that you hear, you see people playing it. Sometimes it will play over a next scene, but it's always our band playing. So I'm just yeah. proud of that. It's, there's never been a show like this. Well, it definitely adds to the authenticity of the experience. I, I think that it wouldn't be anywhere near as impactful if they weren't actually playing it. I'm not sure the show would work, to be honest, I, if I they weren't. Think, I think we all agreed that there was just that was the predicate for the whole show. It had to be yeah. live, and it had to be that level of reality because we were trying to show a portrait of people who do something, they do it not for money and they do it not for fame, but they still have to be like the best in the world to get even considered. Yeah. And so I just thought it was a beautiful way of showing, again, mostly young people of the sacrifice that goes into doing something great that you do for the love of it and you don't do it for the money of it, you know? And I like that you mentioned the vocal jazz part of it. I'm sure that Quincy must you must have learned so much from him about that because of course he produced what many consider to be the definitive live Frank Sinatra record live at the Sands and I, I can only imagine that you learned so much from Quincy about vocal jazz every day every day I spent with Quincy was like a year with someone else because he's so wise wow he's so giving of his information and he's so much fun so you know he's like a father figure to me. And as, as a teacher, I couldn't have had a better teacher. And right. somebody whose knowledge of music, you know, he's got the PhD in all forms of music. He knows the history of African music like no one. And he right. understands the relationship between African music and jazz. And it's something I'm intimately, deeply involved with. And so the Eddie for me on so many levels is kind of a homecoming for me of what jazz could be, what it was, what it could be. It's my Louisiana roots, and so, you know, it was a, a love letter, you know. Since a lot of these songs in here are vocal pieces, vocal jazz, and you wrote the songs first before the show came, did the writers reference your lyrics to build the storyline? Absolutely. Wow, Jack, that's so cool. Jack Dorn wrote the outline for eight of the episodes, and he wrote, I think, six of them himself. 
we gave him 39 songs that we had recorded, their demos of the Eddie. And he went and wrote eight episodes and he put Eddie songs exactly where he wanted them. But they were the songs were already written. So yeah. the lyrics in. I mean, so it was like a musical, but we started with the music. And he created this whole narrative around this music he was given. So, of course, Jack Thorne is a songwriter's, you know, a blessing. And plus, he's, he's a real jazz freak. So in, in every way, and he's a Francophile, even though he's British. So on every level, I got lucky that we took this satchel full of, of jazz songs and we found all these people who responded to it in, in the most remarkable way. It sounds like you got, yeah, the dream team. You couldn't have, you know... No, it couldn't I, have come together any better. We we spent a year in Paris shooting the, the eight episodes, and of course, every day was uh, was just an incredible gift to me. I mean, come on, that must be so awesome! Yeah, Did, it's, I, it's, I can't imagine. I can't. It imagine. was dream time. Although we we stayed up all night because we shot mostly at night, so we would get home about four o'clock in the morning, and I'd be back in the studio at nine. But I'm not complaining. Everything about it's authentic, so that just leads to the authenticity, right? Yeah. Staying out late in a club like that. I think one of the things about the show that I liked, it it doesn't try too hard to capture your attention. It's like it's doing its thing, but by employing that approach, it totally succeeds in capturing your attention. Thank God you feel that way. I mean, I I, I agree. There's a there's a certain sense of that you just that you just kind of ended up in a place and you're just observing this very complicated thing called a jazz ensemble and yeah. how they sort of have figured it out, you know, even the way they figure out the music. And I mean, Damien wanted a lot of that interaction of like working up music, writing a song, auditioning it, changing keys. And so my musicians were in there like working 10 hours a day, like really playing. It was a tough yeah. thing, but we all loved it, you know. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. There's one scene in the first episode where the main character and the vocalist from the house band are working on the song that becomes the piece that is the final song of the first episode. And I just love the way they work together. And at first, the vocalist was kind of, yeah, another song. But as soon as she hears it, she instantly, that musician and the artist takes over and she's 100% there and all of a sudden coming up with lyrics for the song. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, thank you for feeling that. It's exactly right. I mean, we have two characters who are having a personal issue, but the music yeah. kind of transcends that. It's like, uh, I, I don't want to hear it. And he plays it. Oh, wait. Yeah, I do want to hear it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We'll argue later. Let's talk about the music. Let's do the music. Yeah, exactly. This is more important. Yeah, than yeah, Music right. kind of yeah. wins the argument. You know? uh, absolutely. And I think it only serves to highlight how important music is to those characters. It's, it's actually everything. And for any serious musician, quite honestly, the sacrifices aren't worth the reward, probably. But try mm-hmm. telling somebody not to, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so it's sort of like a curse if you're if you're musically inclined, especially now because it's hard to find people to play music with. You got to play with your computer mostly. You have to play with yourself. <laughs> but uh, well, especially today, which I do every day, you know. Yeah. But when I get to play with other people, it's like the most fun ever. It's like vacation, especially now because it's. After four months, I haven't played music with anyone. So exactly the pandemic, it oh, is. It is home demo city here. Yeah, yes, yeah. I know. Well, that same title track, the Eddie, um, which we just talked about, the two characters writing. There's a recording that features Saint Vincent on vocals. Yeah, and uh, she's a fantastic guitar player. I, I mean, great musician, right? Uh, 
And I think a lot of people are familiar with her from her collaboration with David Byrne. Exactly. How did she become involved in this? That was strictly through our record company, Arista Records and Sony Masterwork. I mean, we knew we wanted to put out all the music from, or a lot of the music from the show since it was all live. So basically, the first 14 songs on the soundtrack are live recordings from the soundtrack. And then our record company said, we love these songs. We have a few artists that might want to do covers just as homage to your show. And so we said, yeah, just give it a shot. Those tracks are just homage to this new songbook of jazz songs that we have. You know, we're just thrilled yeah. that they, they felt it. Well, the, the music is fantastic. It is so authentic. And I think that leads me to my next thought is one thing that amazes me about your musicality is you have this ability to effortlessly segue between completely different genres, not only write and produce successfully, but then score massive hits in each of these genres. Is it just second nature to you? Or do you have to like mentally switch gears to say, okay, now I'm going to do pop. Now I'm going to do jazz. Or is it just, just like putting on your shoes? It's like putting on shoes because for me, music is music. And I think growing up where I did has a lot to do with it. Because like I say, I was around authentic, real jazz. I was around people playing music a lot. Just on the street that I lived in, Natchez, Mississippi, there were two brothers who lived across the street from me, the Deadly Brothers, and they played all these instruments, and they were jazz guys. One of them was a trumpet player, the other was a guitar player. And so it was like playing music was something that you did, like you would play sports or something, which I also Sure. So for me, I always wanted to write my own songs. I had a band in the fifth grade. And what did you play? I was a guitarist and the lead singer and the writer. And about 80% of our set was original material. So throughout my entire career, even as a cover band, I usually didn't do covers. And I worked all through junior high school. We played probably 200 gigs, mostly my own shit. So I've had a, a, a long time foisting my new songs on people <laughs> and begging them to like listen to this new song. You know, So I had plenty of, of practice as a songwriter and I was growing up around jazz, but I, but then I was hearing Beatle records and hearing incredible James. I had every single James Brown single that he ever put out in the 60s. Mm. Literally, I had over 145 RPMs of James Brown because wow. it just blew me away. I actually saw James Brown in the 60s. I've never seen anything that good, you know, and his band was so good. But I would also go home and listen to Jimi Hendrix and then listen to, go listen to some jazz across the street. So I just grew up. Music wasn't segregated. It was just this, this great potpourri of all kinds of influence. And, I, and that's sort of the way I approached it. When I came to Hollywood to be a songwriter, I would have many more opportunities if I could write different genres. So just as a, a staff songwriter at MCA Music in 1984, I was able to write for a lot of artists looking for material just because I could go to that, that style of music. And I never put that sort of barrier on myself. I just yeah. like what I like. And I just like a lot of stuff, you know, so. How did you 
meet Alanis Morissette? I met Alanis Morissette in 1994. I think it was February of 1994. I got a call from my publishers. They're now Universal Music, but they used to be MCA. Okay. I had been a staff songwriter there in the 80s. I got a call from the publishers and they said, we have a Canadian songwriter in town. She had a record deal on MCA Canada. She no longer has that deal, but we still have her publishing deal. And would you, would you write a song with her? And her name is Alanis Morissette. I pretty much always say yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm open to the idea of anyone walking into my world is going to give me something that I don't have, you know? So, and I'm looking yeah. for that thing that I don't have in you. And so that's just my whole thing. I'm immediately going to be rummaging through your creativity <laughs> and trying to get something that we can make something out of, you know? And that's, yeah, that's what right. I do. She came in and right away I realized just how intelligent she was and how much I liked her. We had a cup of tea and then we just said, let's, let's write a song. And I had never heard anything she'd ever done. She really didn't know who the hell I was. So we were just kind of like strangers on a train and we seemed like we liked each other. Let's write a song. I said, there was a club in New York City called The Bottom Line. I said, let's write a song about that. I mean, just throwing out ideas. And about yeah. me, let's meet at The Bottom Line and The Bottom Line can be a double entendre about The Bottom Line. Yeah, you love that. This physical place and The Bottom Line of are we in love or not. Man, I'm telling you, we had that conversation and she wrote the lyric. I was playing acoustic guitar. We just made a demo of it right there on the spot. Meet me down at the bottom line And open my heart with your hands And we'll hear the sound of pretenses falling And find where the truth has been Down at the bottom line We wrote the song in about four hours. I sent it to our publisher the next day, she sent it over there, and they said, oh, this is really good. Would you write another one with her? And I went, okay, yeah, let's do it again. And she came back, and, and we, we wrote another song. It was called Ironic. It's like rain. So then she went back to Canada and, you know, the publisher was going, we kind of like what you guys are up to. Would you like to do it again? I said, yeah, if you bring it back here, I'll write with her again. And that's essentially what happened. They brought it back, I think, in June and we just kept writing. So I think I got with her 20 times. We wrote 20 songs. That's what we did for Jagged Little Pill. We wrote 20 songs and recorded them all on the day we wrote them. All the vocals were recorded that day. All the stuff I played was recorded that day. And so would it just be... You on guitar, or would there be various different instrumentation that you would add in? I would play all of it. I was working on a dead format called ADATS, which was one of the first digital formats. You put it on SVHS tape. So I had these ADAT machines. I had a Lin 9000 beatbox that was also, you could put your music in there. So it was one of the first ways that you could play music with yourself. Yeah. Pardon the pun. And so... <laughs> I'm really adept at playing with myself. So it, this was easy. That's how we did every single song on Jagged Little Pill. So she didn't come with any songs or anything. No, you guys just did several all. notebooks full of, because she's such a, a 
inveterately writing all the time. She just can't not write. We had huge amounts of DNA, but all the songs started with conversations. And occasionally she would find stuff in there, but it usually started based on what we wanted to write about. And oftentimes she already had the idea. But the interesting thing is, is that the way we wrote all of it, I almost 100% playing guitar on all of it. And I usually compose on the piano, but I, I just said, I want to play electric guitar on this. So I would get a beat in the Len 9000. I'd get a phrase going on guitar. She would sit on the floor of my studio. And it was just the two of us there every single time. And I'm recording it. And she would start singing. This was the greatest gift of all, is that she would sing her way through it. First of all, her voice is so incredibly expressive. I'm sitting there playing making the track, she's auditioning lines, phrases, lyrics. Right. And literally, we would do about eight hours of that. And at the end of it, we would have a track, a finished lyric. She would go in and sing it once. It's usually about 11 at night. And she would go home. And that's the way we did every single one. Wow. Just saying you ought to know one time. One time, that's the vocal on the record. I recorded it. It's a couple of places, it's so hot that it's, it's actually distorted, but we didn't change it. Well, it's just like Aretha Franklin records, right? You hear when she really leans into a phrase, it's peaking, but like the emotion is there. So who gives? Man, it's easy to make a perfect record now. That's the yeah. easiest thing in the world. Just hit auto-tune, quantize. It's perfect. <laughs> it's so perfect, it's boring, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You want the emotion. You want that excitement. And so that's so fantastic that you were able to keep the vocal tracks from these demos. Look, now how much of the music that you recorded at demos, and you recorded in your home studio, yes. how much of this music that was in the demos made it onto the final record? Anything that I played, is that's it. Wow. And then we added real drums on five or six things. We added a couple of guitar players, bass players, had been my tents play organ on six of the things. The tracks existed already. Those were all overdubs. Literally, everything was an overdub. Wow, that's crazy. Now, did you go in and take those in and add more stuff to them because you thought maybe these songs are the ones that I'm thinking are the best of the bunch and they could be singles and you really wanted to polish them or they just needed more instrumentation to realize the completeness of their... I, I was operating from the standpoint that these were just demos, Okay. which in fact they were. What Atlantis taught me is that a demo is a record... <laughs> <laughs> if there's something good about it, why is it a demo? Right, right. And so there was some talk at Maverick, not from Guy Siri, but from other people that we should record, a, you know, let's go in and really record these. And Alanis was like, hell no, this is it. Guy Siri, hell no, this is it. I mean, he did suggest we add some musicians and he got Flea to play on it. And Dave Navarro, that was all Guy. Yeah. But in no way did he want us to start over and re-record it. It was Alanis that was behind saying, no, we're putting it out like this. I'm not going to redo these vocals. You're not going to replay your guitar. 
the whole thing costs less than $10,000 from mastering, our engineer got paid, a couple of session payments. That was it. I mean, there were demos, man, you know? And so thanks to Alanis, she said, this is the thing that I want people to hear. When you started, she didn't have a deal, right? Like her two album deal up in Canada was up. And so you were doing all of this. I think that speaks volumes about your belief in her abilities. At what point did you finally get that deal with Maverick? When we did the last song. All I really want is the last thing we did. And I think we were signing the deal like the next week. Into January of 1995, we had no deal. Everybody had passed on it. No kidding. How many people did you hit up before Maverick said yes? First of all, MCA, I was signed to, as a writer there. Not only did MCA Records pass, and they had first option on it, they hated it. Really? They hated it. And I had one of the executives at MCA call me up and tell me he was offended by one of the songs called Perfect. It was like, wow, you know? Several other major labels passed. In fact, all of them, every single one. Atlanta went to New York and met with some labels in December. No, in November, it was a pass. There was one person in New York named Steve Greenberg, who worked at Atlantic Records, who called me up in November of 1994. And he said, this is the best demo I've ever gotten. I want to sign it. I went, God, I've been waiting for this call. Yeah, right. I got a call a week later. He said, I can't, people above me don't want it. They won't let me sign it. And he ended up leaving. He started his own record company called S-Curve Records, where he did really well. He had the Baja Man, et cetera. But that was Steve Greenberg is the only other record executive who believed in it. In January or February of 1995, we got a call from Kenny Hertz, who's in her, the law firm where she lived. And he said, I have a client named Guy O'Siri. He's working at, at Madonna's label, mm-hmm. Maverick Records. Just go take a meeting with them. Alanis and I were in the studio, in my studio. We said, okay, set up the meeting. He said, if you go over there right now, he can meet with you. And it was like, so I threw my acoustic guitar in the car. We drove to 8000 Beverly Boulevard, Maverick Records. We walked in. I had my acoustic guitar. We had a dat with the song Perfect. Two or three of the demos we'd done. The first office on the right, Guy Osiri, he met us. He didn't have much to say. He just pointed to the dad player. So I just went over and put the dad in. And I think the first song was perfect. Played for like a minute. And like, I could see him sit up in his chair. And at the end of the song, he was in. I've never had. Oh, that's happen. so cool. I've never that seen anything so like cool. that happen. You know, you see people, it was just an unvarnished positive reaction from a record company executive after literally everyone had said, ah, no. Dio Siri said, I get it. 
And we were, we were blown out of the water. We were blown out of the water. So from that moment on, our fortunes had changed. And he sold yeah. us to the whole label. We had a meeting with Madonna. She loved it. And so with Madonna and Guy Osiri behind us, we went quietly into the marketplace with this little sort of handmade record with a bunch of demos, you know. It had to have been the biggest signing for Maverick. Was there a bigger record for them? Guy had a group called Candlebox, which had done well. I think they had a platinum record. But that's... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Come on. So when the album was released, what started things? What caught fire first? Do you remember like following it and saying, oh man, I think something's happening here? KROQ was the most influential alternative rock station in the world at that moment. And the program director, Kevin Weatherly, yeah. was the most powerful program director for rock music, period. And literally, he just got a record and loved it. It was simply someone loving a record who's in a position of, of influence. So Kevin Weatherly played You Ought to Know on K-Rock, and it literally, after one play, everything changed. Literally, wow. after one play, people were pulling over on the side of the road, phoning in, who the hell is that? Because the phones went off the chart for K-Rock. Wow. The very first time they spun it. And it never stopped, you know? It came right like wildfire, right from the very downbeat. At that point, there were literally no female artists on alternative radio. So it was a huge thing for Kevin to put a female artist in this sort of male-dominated rock music world. And we shot straight to number one, you know? And then, then he added Hand in My Pocket, before you ought to know, I was even coming off, and that we didn't even think that would be our next single. He just added it. In today's terminology, it was trending from the downbeat. It was. Yeah. It really was. And the first little tour she did, I remember going out to Chicago and Milwaukee. I remember the show in Milwaukee was at a bar, and we showed up about seven o'clock at night, and there was like a thousand people lined up around this place waiting to get in. And we thought, oh my God. The power of radio. Yeah. Because people wanted to see her just from hearing it. It happened very quickly. I mean, the, the first two shows she played in L.A. before the record ever came out had the same kind of energy. And nobody knew who she was. The first show was at a place on Santa Monica Boulevard called Dragonfly. The next one was at a place called Luna Park on Robertson Boulevard. And you couldn't get in the room. And I just, I still never know how people kind of heard about it but it was it's phenomenal from the very first performance she did there was some kind of magic around it and i actually i mean we had picked the band i mean we, when we found taylor hawkins in an audition out in the valley we said oh my god that guy's a star okay so wait a minute he was playing drums with alanis what did, he did the first tour with her get out of here yeah it was an open casting call. We, you know, I saw a hundred drummers, a yeah. hundred guitar, and Taylor Hawkins was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, no kidding. Just tell that guy not to leave because he's in the. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Don't let him get away. That's how it out. But this is before I'd ever gone to radio, so we just thought, you know, we got to go out and play some live shows. I'd never really seen her perform other than to just for the auditions. When she did Dragonfly, I'd never seen her perform live, and it was like mind-blowing the amount of energy she she had as a live performer i thought oh my god all the years that she spent 
learning how to be a performer is, is paying off at this moment because now she's yeah. doing what she wants to do, but she actually knows how to do it. The time she spent learning to be an entertainer has now informed the artist. It all came together for me. It was like, oh, yeah, she's actually ready for this moment. Were you surprised how well it sold, even though you knew it was taking off? Because, I mean, it became a massive, massive record. No, I mean, I, I think it would be an act of hubris to ever think that anything you do is going to sell 33 million records. I mean, I, I don't think that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I've been involved on some big Michael Jackson records, but no. I just, I just hoped that people would hear it, you know? Mm-hmm. I was proud of it. I was proud of her courage. I just thought she was amazing, but I had no, no concept that it would be. No, I don't think either one of us did yeah. because we made the record without any record company supervision. We made the right. record without any adult supervision. We would. <laughs> the lesson I got out of that was like, you should trust that instinct more. And she, she told me yeah. that. This album was in the top 20 on the Billboard 200 for over a year. Six singles, six singles. Each one of them went to number one in different formats. For female artists, that's that was it, it remains unprecedented, you know. Yeah, because she could rock with the best of them, man. It was an eye opener. I, you know, my dear friend Steven Tyler was so enamored of her, he just couldn't believe that she could could do that. Yeah, and loved it. Yeah. You know? Well, the album was nominated for nine Grammys, won five. That's one of those pictures where they're almost falling out of your arms. I just have just deep gratitude to have been so lucky to to have met her at the moment I met her, to have had the, the means and the opportunity to collaborate with her. You know, and I, I take nothing for granted. Being a, a musician and being a writer is not something that you should do unless you have great amount of stamina and you can endure a lot of rejection. These moments when you meet someone that great, and you do something just for the love of it, and everybody else loves it. I think it, probably there's never been anything like that for me. That on so many levels was just the purest thing I could ever do, and everybody re- rewarded me for that. You know, so it's a nice little lesson. You know, yeah, you do it because you can't not do it. Exactly. With a record this big, things tend to come out of it creatively. Other things, other projects, and in this case, there's a Broadway musical. The Broadway musical is one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. Forget Christmas and my birthday, this one, <laughs> because I, I can cite three people at least that brought something to it that are, it's mind blowing. You know, starting with Diablo Cody, who wrote oh. the libretto. She took our album, and not unlike what happened with the Eddie, she wrote an entire narrative using the songs tonally and and otherwise to help tell the story. Diane Paulus, the the great director who had a vision for this show, and Tom Kitt, the great musician who took the original songs from Jagged Little Pill and did the most incredible arrangements. His arrangements and his, his explication of the music is so much better than what I did. And I've told him, you found all the best bits and made them so much better. That particular work and and sitting on Broadway on December 5th when it opened, it lifted me out of my seat. And I noticed that everybody else was being lifted out of their seat too. Transcendent, deep, deep gratitude that these talented people took 
Alanis's incredible vision and found another expression for it. How cool is it to hear your work reinterpreted and reimagined like that? Probably the best gift I've ever been given because it's of such high quality and I love it so much. And it moved me so much to be moved by my own work in that way. I don't think I, w I would be capable of moving myself that way. It had to have all these other people to bring other things to it, to bring out the best of it. Everybody involved with it brought something to it that it just deepens the whole jagged little pill experience. I think it's the incredible companion to the original album. And for the fact that it's exploring ideas that Alanis was espousing as a 20 year old woman talking to the world about so many things that are so important to us now that we've all kind of caught up to. She was way ahead of everybody. And the fact that that's embedded in the show, it's just about how, what a visionary Alanis Morissette is. Glenn Ballard, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It was fascinating. Thank you so much. Such great questions. You're such an intelligent interviewer. And thank you for uh, caring about Jagged Little Pill. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.